Welcome to Trifecta Now, Living A Course in Miracles. This is season five, and it's called The Book Club. We're on chapter 20. Welcome back, and Happy New Year. This chapter begins with this sentence, and I quote, The meaning of the Son of God lies solely in his relationship with his Creator, end quote. Remember that the Son of God refers to you and I. This sentence has so much meaning and can be interpreted in different ways. To those of us who believe our Creator is a higher power, an omnipresent spirit, it may seem fairly straightforward. But is it? First, we need to ask ourselves some questions. Like, what is my relationship with my Creator? Do I fully and openly accept my Creator is God? Do I have enough faith that I can accept that there is a purpose and reason for everything that happens to me and everyone around me? Can I accept and embrace a relationship with my Creator? What does that look like? That one sentence has so much depth, but for me, the one word that stood out the most was the word solely. The dictionary definition of that word means not involving anyone or anything else. Now, there are many people who see that sentence and believe their creator was a sperm and an egg that created their life, period. It was an organic process and a natural cycle of life. Their mother is their creator. All of this is true, but I stand by that one word solely. That is the key to understanding all of it. Today, we'll continue with chapter 20, the temple of the Holy Spirit, the consistency of means and end, and the vision of sinlessness. Then in two weeks time, we'll pick up with chapter 21 and start it. So let us begin. On page, this is my book too, page 436, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Paragraph one, and I'm going to say that sentence again. The meaning of the Son of God lies solely in his relationship with his Creator. If it were elsewhere, it would rest on contingency, but there is nothing else. And this is wholly loving and forever. Yet has the Son of God, yet has the Son of God invented an unholy relationship between him and his Father? His real relationship is one of perfect union and unbroken continuity. The one he made is partial, self centered, broken into fragments and full of fear. The one created by his father is wholly self-encompassing and self-extending. The one he made is wholly self-destructive and self-limiting. Paragraph two says, nothing can show the contrast better than the experience of both a holy and unholy relationship. The first is based on love and rests on its serene, rest on it serene and undisturbed. The body does not intrude upon it. Any relationship in in which the body enters in, enters is based not on love, but on idolatry. Love wishes to be known, completely understood and shared. It has no secrets, nothing that it would keep apart and hide. It walks in sunlight, open-eyed and calm, is smiling welcome in smiling welcome and in sincerity, so simple and so obvious it cannot be misunderstood. Paragraph four at the bottom, it says, love has no darkened temples 
where mysteries are kept, obscure and hidden. Next page from the sun. It does not seek for power, but for relationships. The body is the ego's chosen weapon for seeking power through relationships. Paragraph five says the Holy Spirit's temple is not a body, but a relationship. The body is an isolated speck of darkness, a hidden secret room, a tiny spot of senseless mystery, a meaningless enclosure, carefully protected, yet hiding nothing. Here, the unholy relationship escapes reality and seeks for crumbs to keep itself alive. Sentence six says the Holy Spirit does not build his temples where love can never be. Would he who sees the face of Christ choose as his home the only place in all the universe where it cannot be seen? Paragraph six says you cannot make the body the Holy Spirit's temple, and it will never be the seat of love. Paragraph seven says idolaters will always be afraid of love for nothing so severely threatens them as love's approach. Let love draw near them and overlook the body and it will surely do. And they retreat in fear, feeling the seeming firm foundation of their temple begin to shake and loosen. Brother, you tremble with them. Yet what you fear is not the herald of escape. This place of darkness is not your home. Your temple is not threatened. You are an idolater no longer. The Holy Spirit's purpose lies safe in your relationship and not in your body. You've escaped the body where you are the body cannot enter. For the Holy Spirit has set his temple there. There is no, uh, paragraph eight at the bottom says, there is no order in relationships. They either are or not. That's interesting. I'm going to stop there for a second. That sentence at the bottom says, there is no order in relationships. They either are or not. What interesting. And next page, which is page 438. An unholy relationship is no relationship. It is a state of isolation, which seems to be what it is not. No more than that, the instant that the mad idea of making your relationship with God unholy seemed to be possible. All your relationships were made meaningless. Paragraph nine says, idols must disappear and leave no trace behind their going. Paragraph 10 says, the holy relationship reflects the true relationship the son of God has with his father in reality. The Holy Spirit rests within it in the certainty it will endure forever. Its firm foundation is eternally upheld by truth and love shines on it with the gentle smile and tender blessing it offers to its own. Paragraph 11 says the body is the ego's idol, the belief in sin made flesh and then projected outwards. Sentence four near the bottom says, here does the son of God stop briefly by to offer the devotion to death's idols and then pass on. And here he, here he is more dead than living. Yet it is also here he makes his choice between, again, between next page, idolatry and love. Here it is given him to choose to spend his instant paying tribute to the body or let himself be given freedom from it. 
Here he can accept the holy instant offered him to replace the unholy one he chose before. And here he learned, here he can learn relationships are salvation and not his doom. Paragraph 12. You who are learning this may still be fearful, but you are not immobilized. The holy instant is of greater value now to you than its unholy seeming counterpart. And you have learned, and you have learned you really want but one. This is no time for sadness, perhaps confusion, but hardly discouragement. You have a real relationship and it has meaning. It is as like your real relationship with God as equal things are like unto each other. And I'm going to stop it there. So that's really interesting that it ended with the discussion about your our relationship with God, because I've started this podcast about that. So it's stating that our relationships, when they turn from unholy relationships to holy relationships, then they become our, like our relationship with God. And our relationship with God is not based on a body, is it? We don't see a body when it comes to God. It's a faith and it's a belief that He exists and that He is this omnipresent spirit that is always there to support us. So imagine thinking of all your brothers and sisters the same way. Not looking at their bodies, looking past their bodies and thinking, looking at them through their spirits and seeing them the same way as we see God. Wow, that's a huge shift in perception. That's what it's trying to say in this section right here. It's saying the bodies are like idols. You know, when we have a statue and people will put flowers down at its base or jewelry or whatever, or hang beads around it, that's idols. That is a false idol. The book is clearly stating that. It doesn't mean anything. It might represent something, but it doesn't mean anything. And in this world, it's false. And we're putting our faith in something false. What we need to put our faith in is in God and in believing that that higher power is with us all the time. And with that same belief, we have to apply it to all the people that we come into contact with in our life equally, not one more important than the other. That's the special relationship we need to remove. What makes it a holy relationship and no longer special is when we do not treat anybody differently, that everybody is exactly the same. I know that's hard, but that is something we have to get our head around. The next section, the consistency of means and end is on page 439 in my book. Paragraph one says, we have said much about discrepancies of means and end and how these must be brought in line before your holy relationship can bring you only joy. But we have also said that means to meet the Holy Spirit's goal will come from the same source as does his purpose. Being so simple and direct, this course has nothing in it that is not consistent. The seeming inconsistencies or parts you find more difficult than others are merely indications of areas where means and end are still discrepant. And this produces great discomfort. This need not be. This course requires almost nothing from you. It is impossible to imagine one that asks so little or could offer more. Paragraph two, sentence three near the middle says, you recognize you want the goal. You are not, are, no, sorry. Are you not also willing to accept the means? If you are not, let us admit that you are inconsistent. 
A purpose is attained by means. And if you want a purpose, you must be willing to, next page, want the means as well. How can one be sincere and say, I want this above all else and yet do not want to learn the means to get it? Paragraph three says, to obtain the goal, the Holy Spirit indeed asks little. Sentence six, a little bit further down, says, yet how can they be difficult if they are merely given you? They guarantee the goal and they are perfectly in line with it. Before we look at them a little closer, remember that if you think they are impossible, your wanting of the purpose has been shaken. For if a goal is possible to reach, the means to do so must be possible as well. Paragraph five says the body is the means by which the ego tries to make the unholy relationship seem real. The unholy instant is the time of bodies, but the purpose here is sin. It cannot be attained, but in illusion. And so illusion of the brother as a body is quite in keeping with the purpose of unholiness. Because of this consistency, the means remains unquestioned while the end is cherished. Seeing adapts to wish, for sight is always secondary to desire. And if you see the body, you have chosen judgment and not vision. For vision, like relationships, have no order. You either see or not. Paragraph six near the bottom says... Who sees a brother's body has laid a judgment on him and sees him not. He does not really see him as sinful. He does not see him at all. Hmm. Next page, page 441, paragraph 77 says, There is indeed a difference between this vain imagining and vision. The difference lies not in them, but in their purpose. Both are but means each one appropriate to the end for which it is employed. Neither can serve the purpose of the other, for each one is a choice of purpose employed on its behalf. Sentence six near the bottom of that paragraph says, the means seem real because the goal is valued and judgment has no value unless the goal is sin. Paragraph eight says, the body cannot be looked upon except through judgment. To see the body is the sign that you lack vision and have denied the means the Holy Spirit offers you to serve his purpose. How can a holy relationship achieve its purpose through the means of sin? Judgment has taught, judgment you taught yourself. Vision is learned from him who would undo your teaching. So I'm going to stop there for a second because this can be a little bit confusing, this section, but I think that it sums it up in what I just read, which is paragraph eight, the body cannot be looked upon except through judgment. That's what they're trying to, that's the point they're trying to make in this section, is that when we look at bodies, we automatically judge. And, and that's a condition we've had of this world. That's what this world is all about. It's about judgment. So we look at a body and we say, we like it, we don't like it. We discriminate between culture, color, race, whatever. So the body has become all of the focus, all of the focus. This book is saying, and right here it's saying, you're not going to move on. You're not going to get it until the body is removed from the equation. So that's the difference between, between, um, or that's what they're talking about when they say vision. When you have vision, you won't see a body anymore. 
you will see the spirit of that person within that body. And that outside core won't mean anything. And that's what we have to reach. And that's what they mean when they talk about this. So the last paragraph I'm going to read, it says, your question should not be, how can I see my brother without the body? Ask only, do I really wish to see him sinless? And as you ask, forget not that his sinlessness is your escape from fear. Salvation is the Holy Spirit's goal. The means is vision. So this is where, this is the means to the goal, is we have to have this vision. Can't no longer seek to find a body, but we have to seek to find a spirit. And that's the vision they're referring to. For what the seeing look upon is sinless. No one who loves can judge, and what he sees is free from condemnation. And what he sees, he did not make, for it was given him to see as was the vision that made his seeing possible. So again, asking the Holy Spirit for help to stop seeing our brothers and sisters as bodies and start seeing them for what they truly are. The who doesn't matter. It's the what that matters. The next section on the same page at the bottom is the vision of sinlessness. Paragraph one says, vision will come to you at first in glimpses, but they will be enough to show you what is given you who see your brother sinless. Truth is restored to you through your desire as it was lost to you through your desire for something else. Good line. Next page. Page 442. Paragraph two says, Do you not want to know your own identity? Would you not happily exchange your doubts for certainty? Would you not willingly be free of misery and learn again of joy? Your holy relationship offers all this to you. As it was given you, so will it, so will be its effects. And as its holy purpose was not made by you, the means by which its happy end is yours is also not of you. Rejoice in what is yours, but for the asking and think not that you need make either means or end. All this is given you who would but see your brother sinless. All this is given waiting on your desire, but to receive it. That's such such a great paragraph because it's basically saying that you don't have to do anything except let go of bodies and ask the Holy Spirit to show us what everybody truly is and stop judgment. Judgment is just about bodies. That's what we're doing. We're judging people through bodies. And if you can see that, oh, that is such an important lesson here. If you can see that every time you look through your eyes and you look at people, you are making judgments and recognize those judgments, first step. Second step is to ask the Holy Spirit to take those judgments away. And then lastly is to accept what comes, flows through you as it, as it is the truth right? Because God throws, flows through you. Paragraph four says the Holy Spirit guarantees that what God willed and gave you shall be yours. This is your purpose now. And the vision that makes it yours is ready to be given. 
You have the vision that enables you to see the body not. See everything I'm saying? That's what it's saying here. And as you look upon your brother, you will see an altar to your father, holy as heaven, glowing with radiant purity and sparkling in the shining lilies you laid upon it. What can you value more than this? Why do you think the body is a better home, a safer shelter for God's son? Paragraph five says the body is a sign of weakness, vulnerability, and loss of power. Can such a savior help you? No, it can't. Next page, page 443, paragraph six says, everything looked upon with vision falls gently into place according to the laws brought to it by his calm and certain sight. The end for everything he looks upon is always sure for it will need, sorry, it will meet his purpose seen in unadjusted form and suited perfectly to meet it. Paragraph seven says judgment is but a toy, a whim, a senseless means to play the idle game of death in your imagination. But vision sets all things right, bringing them gently within the kindly sway of heaven's laws. What if you recognize this world as an hallucination? What if you really understood you made it up? What if you realize that those who seem to walk about in it to sin and die, attack and murder and destroy themselves are wholly unreal? Could you have faith in what you see if you accepted this? And would you see it? Paragraph nine says, only two purposes are possible and one is sin and the other holiness. Nothing is in between and which you choose determines what you see. I love this book. Paragraph 10 on page 444 says, what has no meaning cannot be perceived and meaning always looks within to find itself and then looks out. That's interesting. Meaning always looks within to find itself and then looks out. All meaning that you gave the world outside must thus reflect the sight you saw within. Or better, if you saw at all or merely judged against. Vision is the means by which the Holy Spirit translates your nightmares into happy dreams, your wild hallucinations that show you all the fearful outcomes of imagined sin into the calm and reassuring sights with which he would replace them. And paragraph 11 says, when you have looked on what seemed terrifying and seen it change to sites of loveliness and peace, when you have looked on scenes of violence and death and watched them change to quiet views of gardens under open skies with clear life-giving water running happily beside them in dancing brooks that never waste away, who need pursue, uh, persuade you to accept the gift of vision. And after vision, who is there who could refuse what must come after? Think but an instant just on this. You can behold the holiest God 
gave his son, the holiness God gave his son. And never need you think that there is something else for you to see. Hmm. So that ends chapter 20. And that, just that section about, that section was called the vision of sinlessness. Just trying to, to again, impress upon us that there is no sin, that that was just made up in this world. It was, a, we made it up. We made ourselves sinful. And we made sin and gave it purpose because we saw bodies and we judge and we decide what people should and shouldn't do. God doesn't do that. God doesn't judge. He doesn't decide those things. We do. And that's what we need, the gift of vision. And and it's everybody. Everybody gets it. No one person gets it more than another. It's an equal distribution. But you have to ask and you have to be willing to let go of the judgment. That's the key. Okay, so um, we will continue with chapter 21, which is called Reason and Perception in two weeks' time. I will cover the following sections. In the introduction, the forgotten song, the responsibility for sight, faith, belief, and vision, the fear to look within, and the function of reason. My online book club is on Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. Wednesday evenings, starting next Wednesday evening. We're coming back, having a little bit of a Christmas break, New Year's break. If anyone is interested in joining, please email me. There's no cost and you are all welcome. My email is trifectanow3 at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. I'd like to wish each and every one of you a happy, joyful, peaceful, and loving new year. As we embark upon another year, remember fear is the opposite of love. If you want love and peace, you need to stop focusing on the body and start focusing on God. I can be contacted by email at trifectanow3 at gmail.com if you would like to ask me a question, share a comment, just say hello. Keep sharing the love. Remember, this is our journey. Let us together find our way. Live in this moment. It's the only one that truly matters. Always love, Denise.